Welcome to today's episode of the Cross-Border Interviews Huntington's Awareness Week. My name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host. Today, I chat with Tara Johnson Ouellette. Tara and I chat about how Huntington's changed her life. Tara's Huntington's journey began with her mother. We talk about how her life changed when her mother was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. We also talk about when doctors first talked about predictive testing with Tara. She knew she wanted to know if she was a carrier of the mutated gene right away. During the episode, we also talk about her journey through the predictive testing and how her outlook on life changed after receiving the results. Please enjoy Cross Border Interviews Huntington's Awareness Week featuring Tara Johnson Ouellette. Tara, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, this is uh, one of our episodes that we will be conducting for Huntington's Awareness Month uh, on the Cross Border Interview Podcast. I'll be doing a quick introduction uh, in post production, like I said. But, uh, Tara, I, I guess the first question, and I have to get this out of the way, is um, how has Huntington's disease affected you and your family? Well, um, I'm probably one of the few that would actually probably say to you that um, in hindsight, it, it honestly was one of the biggest blessings of my life personally, even though it was uh, full of a lot of pain and a lot of tragedy. Um, but it, I've learned uh, through the journey, there's been so many people that um, have shown us what real strength and resilience looks like. Um, so, yeah, I, it's it's been painful, um, but it's also shown me um, what it takes to be a, a very strong person. Now, uh, for those uh, listeners who might not know, what is Huntington's disease for you? Did, uh, so, um, in your words, how can how do you explain Huntington's to others? Yeah, well, I uh, we were one of the families that didn't know what it was, so I had to learn. Uh, we'd never seen the disease, and so when I got introduced to it, uh, the way that I now explain it to kind of bring it down so anyone can understand it is it's a neurological disease that is genetic. Uh, every child of a parent who has Huntington's has 50-50 of getting the gene. Uh, so you, we all know you get a gene from your mom and your and your dad. And so it's 50-50 that you may carry it. Um, it attacks the central part of the brain in the basal ganglia. And basically how I describe it is uh, most of our family, our, our clients, if they drop a pencil, if you or I drop a pencil and we know, hey, arm, go pick up the pencil, it's on the floor. A Huntington's patient, uh, our client would see that. And in their brain, the pathways are broken. So the message from the brain to say, hey, arm, go bend down, tell your knees to bend and pick up the pencil. For a Huntington's uh, client, they will seem slower because they're processing the message because within their brain, the cell death occurs in the central part of the brain and the pathways are broken. So 
they may understand that they need to pick up the pencil, but for them to send the message to their body to react to that, they will seem very slow. But it's because the pathways for the message to transfer in the brain are actually broken or eroded. So it has to send the message back and find another way. So that's kind of how I explain it. So um, simplistic way. Well, yeah, I, I just spoke to a doctor about this and she did not give me the simplistic way. So uh, <laughs> it is very much appreciated that the simplistic way can sometimes be the easiest way to explain it. So thank you very much for that. Um, you, you said you are one one of the few uh, people who didn't know about Huntington's until uh, it reared its head at your, you and your family. Um, mm-hmm. Prior to uh, a diagnosis with a fam- family member, I'm assuming? Yes, it was my mom. Uh, so prior to the diagnosis with your mother, um, uh, were there signs that you had seen f- in your mother that you knew something was potentially up? Or was there a moment when you said, let's go find out more information of what, what's happening to mom right now? Well, a little bit about our story um, on our journey was, um, and I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of families over the years, and I don't think this is uncommon. Um, my parents divorced, uh, as many do, towards uh, mid mid to late stages. Um, we knew that something, when I was born, um, they my mom started having seizures in her leg, and uh, she had me at the age of 21. And so from that point, she was put on some very strong medication for these like seizures in her legs that happened only at night. And um, so hindsight is they don't know if that medication triggered the onset of HD or if it was the birth of a child, which what I, you know, again, this was, you know, decades ago now, but uh, a lot of neurological diseases can be uh, the onset of it can start with the birth of a child because the chemical changes in the brain. So they're not sure what turned it on, if you will. Um, But it was at 21. And so she had these seizures. And it was very slow and progressive. We know that the disease typically happens between 30 and 45 years old is when it turns on with her, it was much younger. Um, She was also in a very abusive relationship with my father, uh, who was an alcoholic, very abusive, um, you know, was physical with her. So again, hindsight, trauma to the head um, can trigger things, you know, things are getting uh, knocked around there. So that could have been uh, a non a trigger as well, that turned it on. So many factors contributed, you saw slow changes, my mom was a valedictorian um, of her high school. So she was very bright girl, um, married, essentially the wrong person, but thankfully had us. So that was that was a positive, but uh, stayed with him. And when it kind of started to unravel, it was at the same time that she ended up leaving my dad, which was a blessing for her. But, you know, um, society puts a lot on that. She's having a breakdown, you know, these misdiagnoses, nobody knows. And it was early days. Um, you know, she left him probably in about 88, 1988. They hadn't found the gene yet. So for years, she was kind of fumbling around. Um, but she, she'd worked at a bank for uh, 15, 20 years and couldn't balance her till 
at the end of the day, had been doing it for, you know, almost two decades and struggled to, you know, she was always off and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. But then they attributed, oh, you know, she's going through this with a divorce. Maybe she needs a less stressful job and basically said, you, you know, maybe you should move on to something less stressful due to what's happening with your life. She had at that point, um, really became depressed. You know, at the time, I didn't know it, but she was very deep depression. Um, you know, she was also going through a custody battle. So there's many things attributing to this. But I think underlying was the the Huntington's. She always had like little weird fidgets with her hands, movements. Um, so we saw some physical manifestation, I would say, in the early 90s. Um, but then, you know, she got a new job, uh, worked at London Drugs and was a cashier. So that should have been pretty simple for her. And for the first couple years, it was. But then we saw slippage again and she was struggling. The cash register would say count back five dollars and 30 cents. She couldn't do it. And um, without having a diagnosis, as many families that are listening to this today know, it is very difficult to get any kind of disability or coverage at work. And uh, so knowing what I know today, I would really, one message I'd like to give all the families is don't leave your job until you get the diagnosis. A lot of people just want to go and hide away and, and bury themselves. But that is not the right thing to do. My mom leaving the bank where she, you know, could have gotten disability for the rest of her life. The end of it, she ended up leaving London Drugs to try and go and find out what was wrong. And it was not until she saw a neurologist that actually had seen Huntington's that knew what it was. And then they said, we're going to take your blood and you're going to come back in a week or two weeks and we're going to give you and we don't know if it's Parkinson's, uh, ALS, Huntington's. You come back next week, we'll let you know. This was in March of 1994. And anyone who knows anything about the disease, the marker was found in 1993. So we were the first family in southern Alberta. They had done a pilot of basically they found the gene. And then for all of 93 in, in this region, they were working through how they were going to tell people, like, what does this look like? Because I think at that time in the States, it was illegal to do predictive testing even. Like, it was such a new thing. And how many consequences to it, right? Whether people could handle it, what's the protocol, how much counseling. And in our family, we'd never seen it uh, as well. So we didn't know what we were kind of walking into. And uh, yeah, two weeks later, she did in fact go back and she, she got the diagnosis that she was a carrier of HD. She got her, her counts, uh, which were, from what I recall, were in the high 80s. Wow. Um, which was very high, uh, as we know, right? Um, so for those who are listening, but, the uh, average, mm-hmm. the um, the number of uh, CAG, if I'm not mistaken, CAG. Yeah, the uh, repeat. The, yeah. the repeat number that uh, they're looking for, if it's above, if I'm not mistaken, 37, correct? Or 27? Yeah, I- 37. 37. So if the number of repeats in your genes is more than 37s, you have be, you are a carrier of HD. Uh, so that's what you're, so when you say your mother was in the high 80s, mm-hmm. that is a, 
significant. A significant, yeah. Juvenile, I think, is you know usually in the hundreds. Um, juvenile uh, Huntington's disease, and so just on the fourth chromosome is where the mutation occurs. And everybody out there, we all have the repeat. So if you have a number of 23, you are a normal, healthy person. And if you get over that threshold, and this is where why, why it's important as well, what I've learned through, you know, the conferences and decades of being around this is they have seen instances where you have two people that are actually healthy. If you had two people that were a 36 on their counts, on their fourth chromosome of their their marker, and now they have a child, the mutation could actually just tip it over into the threshold. And so there have been instances of healthy people. I mean, it's very statistically, it's low, right? But the reality is that's one way that it can come forward from a non HD family at all. It's those counts. And so um, I'm always, you know, even today when I hear anybody, when I, I'm interested in their numbers and, you know, some, I've heard some doctors say that's not a significant thing, but I don't know. I, I personally, on a personal, what I've seen and heard over the years, I, I think that is a, a big indicator. So she was high, which attributed to, you know, her onset being so young. She wasn't juvenile, but 21 is not the norm. Um, now, keeping in mind when she got her result, I was 20. So now here we are not knowing the disease. She gets this diagnosis. She didn't really have any counseling, like at all. They just, because she was late stages and she she was kind of desperate at that point. She'd walked away from the bank. She'd walked away from this cashier job. She had banked money into her RSPs, obviously working at the bank. She was now living on her RSPs and cashing that out because she had no diagnosis and nobody knew what was wrong with her. So getting this diagnosis as quickly as possible in her scenario without having that support in the counseling, um, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it was uh, it was a desperate time for her. So um, you, you get that uh, initial diagnosis of your mother in uh, March of 1994, correct? Yep. So you get that yep. initial, um, like you said, um, the marker wasn't discovered until 1993. There are not support groups for Huntington's because it's not a common uh, disease at this time. Who do you rely on? Who, who are you relying on in this time? Is it just family or are you reaching out to the states where people are being uh, diagnosed with this or you're reaching across Alberta? So what were the first steps that you and your mother took when that, uh, that final diagnosis of here's what it is, here's what uh, has been affecting you since since 21 what, what what was your support group during that time like honestly at that point uh i had been dating a guy for three years uh my high school high school sweetheart so i leaned on him um and his mom was a nurse so unfortunately she was very aware of what this meant uh i wasn't aware of really the extent of what it was because 
we'd never seen it, right? Like I saw her, but she just had like physical, you know, twitches kind of thing. And her, she was off balance. She looked like she might've been drinking, which, you know, she loved to do. So that made it worse. Um, her personality at that point uh, really started to change um, because she became, you know, and these are a lot of things that people don't want to talk about, but I really, for the benefit of families out there and, you know, having young daughters maybe going through this, watching a parent, whether it's a father or mother, um, I think it's, I, I really want to be as transparent as I can. So, and it's no disrespect to my mom at all, um, but she became very promiscuous. And, you know, part of it was probably being in a loveless marriage for decades and an abuse of, you know, what. But part of it, looking back again, was the disease, right? That is a common trait. And, but when you're, you know, you know, she was doing that from like when I was about 16, 17 is when I moved in with her. And she was doing that all the time, bringing these random men home. And I was so upset. I mean, this was before the diagnosis. And so this is why in such a, you know, I I should write a book about it because it was, it's such a twist of fate almost that because I had seen this part of her or a different part of her, once um, she left my dad that I was very unhappy with. Like, I just, you know, I couldn't understand why she was bringing these men home and her behavior was different and making what I thought was bad choices. And she'd fought in custody battles for, for myself to live with her. And now I'm living with her and she doesn't even pay attention to me. And, um, you know, at 17... That I mean, this was before all the Huntingtons, but we were at such a dark place that um, I actually attempted suicide. And uh, that was a really low point. So we got through that where I just was like, she's on her own page. And I almost hated her. Like, I didn't like her. And then this Huntington's came along. And honestly, this is why it was, it's it's such a twisted thing, but it was a gift because it allowed me to put all of that in a box where I could frame, you know, I could have some rationale for that behavior and understand her pain and she was very relieved when she got her diagnosis which was so weird yeah like that just- I mean she was depressed don't get me wrong but I said like you know I was so young and we weren't like keeping in context everything I just said like we were not really close right we were I was wild one I quit high school twice because of all this like I was just on my own page and then this happened and I'd started to calm down I met this sweetheart high school sweetheart I really felt very independent and then this happened and then she was like oh finally I know what's wrong with me and for me, it was able to put everything in a box that had happened. And somehow I was able to differentiate two people. 
One, that the HD was becoming so prevalent and this behavior. And she was so lonely and lost and had no support. I mean, she had, you know, there was one man that really did love her, but she just was so messed up, right? And and grieving and she knew something was wrong. And then she got this and then felt this levity of knowing but then a deep depression came in. So for me at that time, I had to kind of get my head straight. I leaned on the boyfriend. I leaned on his his family significantly. My grandma was absolutely her mom. Um, my mom was adopted. So my mom and my grandma were not really close. So that was a whole other paradigm because here we are, you know, two women in my mom's life that she's actually not that close with. And now she has to depend significantly on my grandma who helped her financially until we could figure out what was wrong. And then myself who was living with her, who eventually became, you know, her full-time caretaker until I caregiver until I couldn't take care of her anymore. So, um, we didn't have, we just got a social worker in Southern Alberta, like literally like we were the first family and I was like a raging 20 year old that was a hothead. Uh, I'm, I'm a redhead. So I'm just a pistol and full of piss and vinegar. And I phoned her and I said, okay, you know, I, my mom told me on Friday about this and she's like you, and she was very matter of fact, it wasn't a crying episode. It was like, yeah, I got told I have Huntington's. Here's the pamphlet. You might have it too. You have 50%. She gave me the pamphlet and walked away. And I was just like, wow. Okay. So I phoned um, this social worker and I said, I want to get tested. How do I do this? And so you, you wanted to like, know right away. You, there was no second guessing of, uh, you know what, I'll figure it out later on because that is the one thing that some people might have, uh, have a hard time to, uh, uh, actually come to terms with is, do I want to know or do I not want to know? And for you, it was a simple yes and no answer. Yes, I want to know. I, I, like, I need to know what is going to happen potentially to me. Yep, because at that time I was taking a medical secretary course. And so we were learning about not so much diseases, but just, you know, how things kind of work in medicine. And I knew you could have amnio done. And because I'd been dating this guy for three years already, I was starting to think, okay, like all of a sudden it was like, and I'm very black and white, like I'm very full on or full off kind of person. Um, so I was like, okay, if I'm going to have a family, whether it's today or five years or, you know, and I'm in this school, which wasn't like a big university thing. It was a nine month course, but I was like, I need to, you know, I'm a year younger than my mom's onset probably give or take. So I'm like, I need to figure out, should I waste time going to school? Should I have a family right away? Do I want to get married sooner? And I was very, you know, and so that started the whole journey of predictive testing. Like, you know, I didn't, it didn't, I mean, they called it that, but I didn't really know what I was getting into. All I knew is I wanted my result. 
And so the social worker, you know, I phoned her probably every second day because I was like, I want to get this. Like my mom got this in two weeks. So and she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what took my mom two weeks that journey took me almost 10 months. So let's talk about that journey a bit, because from uh, sure. what I understand, and I'm, I'm talking to a genetic counselor later on this week, um, um, there's usually four steps that go along with uh, that predictive testing that you're talking about of finding out, uh, are you uh, uh, at a chance of, uh, do you, what, uh, what, what area do you fall on? Will you have HD? Will you not have HD? So there was four steps. The first is meeting with that genetic counselor, correct? Yep. So uh, when your social worker got you in contact with the gen- genetic counselor, talk me through mm-hmm. that first step for you. Yeah. Was it e- was it an easy like meeting because you knew right away, like you said, I need to know. I I I don't care. Like I want to know right now if I am a carrier or not because it will affect the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I was so naive. I don't know how different it would be today with the information I'm armed with. But at that time, like it was, if I think back to the day I met him, it was almost comical. Like on my end, like I, I would kind of laugh at me. He probably, he was not laughing at me, but I was like hell bent. This is a formality. I'm here. I'm checking the box. And, but he, he asked me straight up. He's like, and I, you know, I still think it's ludicrous. Um, you know, him saying to a 20 year old, what are you going to do with this information? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, you know, are you going to have any suicidal ideations? Like, you know, he's getting all psyche on me. And I'm like, I I said, you know, I know what you want to hear. You want to hear that I'm going to make the best of it. And I'm not going to have a breakdown. I'm not going to kill myself. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And I said, I'll tell you everything you want to hear. But deep down, no one can know how this will affect them. It's like, it's impossible to know. And hindsight for anyone that's thinking about predictive testing is, it's not about, I think it's not about, you don't realize at the time when you're going through the predictive testing, the impact, because everybody thinks, oh, you know, if you don't have it, like it's like a celebration everything's done it's great it's da 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 and I remember the social worker saying you know there's a thing called survivor's guilt and I I laughed at her like I physically laughed at her I said that would never happen to me like if I don't have this I'm going to be the happiest person on the whole planet and the journey of predictive testing will change you 1000% no matter what your result is and I think the part that I felt the the um, psychiatrist I don't want to say failed but I don't think that they spent enough time exploring the other side of that like they're always so focused on if you have it you know Da, 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 what's it going to look like? And I've talked to so many families over the years, people that have went through testing, and they've lied to their family. They've they've completely, like, literally lied to their sisters and brothers saying, 
yeah, I have it when they didn't have it. And so I didn't have an appreciation of the impacts and how it will change your perspective. It has, it has changed probably most decisions that I make in my life, that, that journey. So just on, just to piggyback on a, a statement you just said there that uh, mm-hmm. you had talked to family members, not your family member, other family members where they, they, w- they would lie and say they have it. Is that because they didn't go through with the full predictive testing? Because the last stage of the predictive testing is getting your results. Yeah. And uh, no. oh, go, yeah, ahead. Go. go ahead. So the last, from what I understand, the four steps, the, the fourth stage is sitting down with the genetic counselor or the doctor and actually delivering the test results to the uh, person who's going through, through the predictive testing, correct? Yeah. What What was your step three or two and three? I'm curious. So I'm wondering, step, I mean, this was a long time ago. Step two is the test. Okay. Step yeah. three. So step two is the meeting with the doctor. Step three is yeah. the test, and step four is the uh, actually sitting down or and sitting down and getting the results. Yeah. So you went so, through step two as well, right? You met with the doctor who was going to be conducting the test, correct? Because the psychiatrist will do the first round, or the genetic genetic counselor will do the first round of uh, talking you through what is going to happen, see, asking you those questions, like you said, where you just you knew what the answers were going to be, and you were just going to tell them the way it was. The second time is meeting with the doctor and actually going through the test procedures, right? Mm, mine. <laughs> I no, I don't think it wasn't like when I met the second time, like the next thing was I just had to get blood. Okay. It wasn't a specific like it wasn't a meeting, it wasn't a big chat. It was like a tech taking my blood. Okay. That was it. There was no but then I had to go see this like psychiatrist and I did a lot of talking with a social worker. Like they just did not feel they were very concerned, which is fair. They were very concerned that because I hadn't seen the end of what this disease looked like, that I didn't really know what I was getting into. And they felt I was rushing into it and they were trying to slow me down. And I did not appreciate that at the time. I was, you know, I mean, it got to a point when we were kind of month four and five, this became consuming for me. I became obsessed with this almost like if I forgot my keys, if I anything, I was second guessing myself all the time. Were you projecting? Um, were you projecting what you saw in your mother onto you when you were waiting for your results saying, yeah. oh, I, I forgot my keys. Is yeah. this a sign? Like this could yeah. be a sign. Yeah. Every, every little thing I was, I was, you know, oh, I leave the house. Oh, did I, I unplug my curling iron? Oh my God, I got to go check. You know, and we all do that. Like the thing is, is a lot of things we do like we don't remember every little thing but it's the you become obsessed with it it's OCD at the finest and and now at this time I had gotten a new job and I started working for a psychiatrist (laughs) and so you know and then I started talking to him like do you know this disease and he, he and he did and um so I was just around and then I was working out of Foothills Hospital at the time, which is, you know, where these doctors were. And so it was interesting where my path of my life was going at the same time. And and then, you know, I had to go see the genetic, uh, the psychiatrist again. And he said to me, um, 
you know, the topic of having a family came up, which was, you know, I tell this story because, you know, I don't know how other people are experiencing this now today. I mean, people have probably evolved a bit, but I, I, keep in mind, I was 20 years old. I'm, I'm like now I'm very wound up more than normal. I'm four or five months into this. I want my results. My mom is in a deep depression now. I can hear her crying herself to sleep every night, which then ultimately the fear of this starts like the reality of this starts to set in, which is, you know, they did want me to realize how how important this is. And they were trying to coach me on insurance, which was very smart. And so they they asked me to go and get life insurance and the social worker stepped me through that and on the questionnaire that I got it did ask like you know keep in mind we're the first family this is all new but the uh, the plan that we applied for it did ask if um, you know there was any genetic diseases and of course you can't lie, obviously. And I said, yes, my mom, you know, I wrote on there that my mom had Huntington's. And so, you know, a couple weeks later, I get this envelope and uh, I open it and I got refused for life insurance. And that was a reality check. Then I was like, holy, this is serious. So I told the social worker and she's like, okay, because now if I ask for any other insurance, I will have to declare that I've been refused for life insurance. So that's another, if I, you know, I call them nuggets. Nugget number one, be very, you know, when you go down predictive testing, be very mindful of that. We'll speak more about that. Nugget number two. Get your affairs in order. Be very careful what insurance you apply for. You never want to apply for an insurance that you're going to get refused. Now the social workers know which ones to apply for and which ones not, which ones are going to ask or if you have a group plan. You know, that is a very important thing because I was basically blackballed. And so that set in and it was like, okay, this is not good. Then I'm seeing my mom. Then I go back to the psychiatrist and the topic of having a family comes up. And I was so matter of fact, I just said to him, he's like, well, will you have children? And I said, well, I can get amnio and they can test the baby for the disease. Like back then we didn't have IVF or any of this PDG or whatever it is, all this stuff. We didn't have any of that. So I was like, well, we can do amnio. And if the baby has it, I'll have an abortion. Well, the guy just about fell off his chair. <laughs> he was, you know, because now you're getting into ethical questions and religion and all. I wasn't raised with all of that, like religion and my family. But I, all I knew is I saw what Huntington's was doing to my mom. There is no way on this planet, in this lifetime, that I would ever have a child knowing that they could come into the world and potentially have Huntington's. And I was crystal clear on that. So my only option was I would never have children, or which was not an option, or I would go through the process of having a baby and I would abort until I would have a healthy baby, which was like... 
a major statement to be talking to a doctor about. That didn't go over well. Especially in the 90s, right? In Yeah, it was a different, I mean, even now, people don't, you know, with abortion, they, that's like a taboo word, yeah. but we didn't have other options. They couldn't do stuff in the Petri dish and check your eggs and all this, but I was like, no, it's not happening. There's a way around this. And, um, but to see the reaction from a medical person that wasn't supporting what was right for me, it might have not been okay with him, but for me. And to see that that made people uncomfortable, it was a really, that was another pivotal moment. Um, you know, of course, I'm dating this guy at 20 and I'm, but he's probably like, quite honestly, crap in a brick because he's like, oh my God, this girl's talking about marriage. He's like, because your whole perspective of time changes. Like my perspective of time changed because my mom was so young. And here she was, you know, at 40, not able to work at all. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a rough. That was a really, really rough time. So that ten, that's ten months of your life where you're 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 hoping like tomorrow I'm going to get the results. Tomorrow I'm going to get the results. Keep on going, but it takes ten months to get your final results. So um, let's let's talk about that day when uh, you get the call to, or the week beforehand you get the call to say, "Come in, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about your results." Do you remember going? Oh, yeah. Do you remember going remember. into that meeting and yep. just thinking, I, "I I'm I'm prepared for." either or or were you going in because like you, we had talked about prior you were projecting okay. a little bit on yourself saying oh i'm forgetting this did i forget this so were yeah. you going into that meeting with an outcome already predetermined or oh, yeah. were you going in hopefully open-eyed no i um i look like a mini me of my mom so much so that when we would go to family gatherings at christmas my relatives would call me Janice, which is was my mom's name. So I look like her. I think like her. I'm OC, like very organized like her. I am her. So I was convinced 150%. I was prepared that I have it. And it was just a matter. It was just a matter of getting the result and knowing I had it. So the boyfriend went with me. Um, my grandma was on standby on the phone waiting and we went, it was a really sunny day, really warm. And I just remember feeling very numb going there and we got into the, the waiting room and I was physically, I looking back, it was probably almost a panic attack I was having. I you know, could barely breathe, shortness of breath, sweaty. That day, the dog, the nurse came out and said, I'm sorry, the doctor's running behind. You know, you're going to be pushed about an hour. So I remember we went back outside and I, it like, I felt like I was going to throw up the entire time. It was the worst anxiety ever. So we went back in and uh, I went in, in to the office they opened the envelope and uh the genetic nurse was behind me and the doctor read it and she said you don't carry the gene 
And I said, how many repeats? What's the number? And she's like, you're like, I, it was, I don't even remember. It was 28 or 32. Like it was not one away from the wrong one. Right. Like I, I wanted to know if I was on the cast and I think I went into shock and I looked behind and the nurse was crying and, uh, which, you know, was shocking to me. Like that was nice to see, but I, I think I just literally went into shock. I could not, I was so unprepared for that result and we left there and I think I was just like a zombie my boyfriend led me around and we got to a payphone and I called my grandma and she was just bawling and I remember getting in the car and saying to him I think they made a mistake they got to redo this test and so is that where that survivor's guilt sort of kicks in for you then because I don't believe it now, right? I don't believe that I don't have it. So they need to retest it because I, I, I like if my mom has it, I'm a spitting image of her. I know I'm going to have it. So they need to do this process all over again. Yeah, I wouldn't call. I wouldn't have labeled it survivor's guilt at that point. I just thought they're wrong. They've, they've made a mistake and this is impossible. Like I, but okay, fine. So we get home. And my mom was there, and and then that's when this survivor's guilt. I I went into the kitchen and and I said, she's like, how did the? And she was so nonchalant. She and you know, but she's in the late stages of the disease, right? But she just looked at me and said, well, how did it go? And I said, I don't have it. And she's like, oh, that's that's great. And she walked away. Wow. And I was just like, oh, my. And then a tsunami of guilt came. And after that, you know, how I would listen to her cry at night because her bedroom was just down the hall from me. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it's it's like (laughs) the only way to describe it is it's like you've been saved and you don't know why. And I struggled for a long time. Like why in, and you know, why don't I have this? Like, what am I here for this whole purpose? And like, you hear people talking about it, but after that, it really, it, that's what I mean. It really changed for the perspective. And I know there's been a lot of clients, family members, they go for testing, they don't have it, and they vanish from the community, from our families. And I do not understand that because I I just felt such a... I mean, to this day, I still even, you know, it's not as much now because I actually went and called the social worker many times and said, you know, I think they need to redo the blood. I want them to retest me. And she said, no, we we won't. And this is why this is the protocol. And, and I'm like, you know what? Like, we're new. This process is new. I think they've made a mistake. And I was still convinced for years. And even, you know, not even that long ago, I was like, could you imagine if they were wrong? Because now, you know, like, as you get closer to the age when you see your your parents are sick, 
you start comparing like you're like, oh, my God, you know, this is I'm at the same age and this is like, you know, now you have kids and like, you know, your perspective changes as you grow older and you start to try and see things through their lens. Right. So your perception of things continues to evolve. But, um, yeah, it's it it's mind blowing to me. I will never leave the community. I will never, even if I didn't have one more person in my family affected, I wouldn't do that because I feel an obligation to to do what I can to help and to raise awareness, which is why 20 some years later, well, 20, I'm 40, what am I, 46, 26 years later, I'm still here talking about it, raising awareness. And that is why. So you are one of the few that have openly admitted that you knew you wanted to get tested once that uh, your mother was diagnosed. Um, Predictive testing, it is a double-edged sword. Um, You can find out that you might only have a few years to live because you might get Huntington's disease or you might be diagnosed with Huntington's disease. Or like yourself, you might be uh, one of the few that gets a uh, quote-unquote uh, result that uh, might make you start rethinking everything that you've done and how it now is affecting you because you're watching your family member go through it and you're not going to be doing this you're not going to be going through the same thing that they are so that guilt yeah. that you we talked about um mm-hmm. predictive like i said predictive testing can it is it is a tough choice for anyone out there for those who are um thinking should i shouldn't i what advice would you give them today knowing what you went through knowing what you've seen what would you give those people today who are trying to come to a scenario that's best for them and what advice would that be for them um probably the biggest nugget related to that one of them would be the rea- the true my opinion the true reality is whether you have it or not, you should be living your life the same way. And that, like, it's kind of an oxymoron too, right? Because, like, why would you not go to school, you know, if you thought you weren't going to be able to work in 10 or 15 years? But it's really more about doing what you love or doing what inspires you or what's important to you. Like, don't put things off. Like, because of this experience, I was like a major saver when I was young. I wouldn't spend any money. I didn't, you know, I never went to the spa. I never got pedicures. I never treated myself. I was just very frugal. You know, my mom had taught me to save and RSPs and, you know, and after this, that went out the window. I mean, I didn't blow it all away, but, you know, if we are looking at spending money now so that we can enjoy something with our family or our friends, I will do that. I will not put things off. Um, I have a tattoo. I have two tattoos on me, and one of them says, someday is today, meaning don't put off things. And another one is, everybody dies, but not everybody lives. So it's like, 
you got to live in the moment. And so many people say that, but the predictive testing experience will change you. Know that for certain, whoever's going through it. Um, And really, when they say, what's it going to change? I mean, you can't really know that. You won't know that. And I think it's unfair for these doctors to ask. Um, And ask yourself, why do you want to know? There are some people that I've seen that I don't think should know. If you don't have a strong support system around you, if you are, you know, uh, a a worrisome person and you ruminate about things and, you know, like it isn't for everybody. Um, But it doesn't mean you shouldn't, you should be living your best life no matter what you decide to do. And the other big thing that I probably, I don't have any regrets in my life, but the one thing I, I would have, I wish somebody would have told me is I would not have shared my result with anybody. Yeah, because um, that's a that's a weird statement to say because uh, <laughs> it's just because wouldn't you want people to know because it's one of those uh, um, so when people asked you when your mother was going through Huntington's when she was going through the mm-hmm. transformation of Huntington's I'm assuming people would say well, are have you got tested are you carrying oh, it yeah. so you oh, yeah. you would you would openly admit right now that you would not tell them that you were tested or that you were uh, tested. Uh, negative for it i wouldn't i probably wouldn't people that i don't know i would not have told them people within the community i definitely i probably would have just made it sound like i was in the process of predictive testing but i never would have told somebody i got the result especially in the hd community because i felt and i still feel today that um and this, and I, you know, I think it's kind of sad. And I think that's one of the messages I want to uh, say to any of the listeners that are considering this is I really don't, there is a stigma. As much as having the disease, there's a stigma. There's a stigma of not having it because then you get put in the camp when they do panels or when they speak about it. It's like, oh, you know, anyone that has HD, oh, you don't understand. You don't know what it's like to have it. No, I don't know what it's like to have been told that. But they don't understand what it feels like to be living with that guilt or the burden of watching somebody deteriorate and knowing and being helpless, you know, like if you don't walk in that those shoes, you don't understand that. And so and people pigeonhole you from then on, especially when if you're very and I was very active in the in the uh, chapter. So I've told young people going through it that if you are, you know, that have been involved with our chapters um, or chapters in Canada, that but my best advice to them is be very mindful of who you share this result with because it has its own stigma. I, because you're, you know, like the media, I mean, they want to talk to people with Huntington's, but it is a family disease. The people hurting are not just the people with, with the disease and the focus is often on them, but the caregivers and what grief every day that they live is, it is so painful. Well, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, they call it the family disease, do they not? 
They do, but the media and the support, I mean, we do, you know, I'm not, I'm not slagging on anybody. There is groups and such, but it's, you know, there, we're not the ones that are sick, right? So it's like, but it is, it is very painful. And I have so much respect for caregivers and so much empathy for them. And I think they're the unsung heroes. Uh, you know, we, we learn so much from, you know, the resilience of our clients and our families and our patients that have this, it's unbelievable. My mom never complained. She never, I mean, I knew she was depressed, but she was never angry with, you know, bitter and mean and all that. Like she didn't have any of that, thankfully. Um, so I learned what strength looked like from her, but it's, uh, the caregiver's I've talked to so many of them and they're just, they live it. And it, you know, if they have one child and they have another child and you see this in some families where the parent, you know, lost her husband and now she's got three kids that she's caring for and one commits suicide or what, like, it's just the pain is unbelievable, right? It's like, how much can one person endure? And and we've witnessed that. So, yeah, so that's, that would be my other thing is be really mindful and put a lot of time into that and I it's I mean it's great to tell immediate family but like I say I've talked to a lot of people that have hidden it from their family because they just they don't want to be treated different they don't want their family members that are living with it to to worry about them or you know like I don't know. It's, no, a, it's a personal choice. Exactly. Um, I, I do want to talk about your mother a little bit more. Um, and I apologize if this is a sensitive question. Um, getting to her end of life, um, was it daunting on you watching your mother go through that transformation? Because like you, you, you had openly stated that it was hard for you to hear her cry down the hallway. Um, how hard was it to watch your mother be taken away from you with, from this disease? Because, uh, from interviews I've listened to, uh, like videos I've watched with, uh, family members, the hardest thing is not seeing the person that they loved anymore even though that they're still there. So was it, you say it was a blessing, but how how did you overcome that loss of a loved one from this disease? Was it joining the Huntington Society of Canada's uh, Southern Chapter, or was there other ways that you were able to get out there and give back to help other families get through this as well? There's a lot of questions in there, and I hope you... Yeah, yeah. no, um... Well, you know, I think one of the coping mechanisms I used was, um, you know, always trying to treat her like a person, not focusing on the disease, like things that she really enjoyed. You know, she always liked to do her nails and her hair and her eyebrows and, you know, like things like that. So treating them with dignity that way and and you know I would paint her nails and shape her nails and things like that for her even when she couldn't really um talk a lot um it was difficult I did try and keep my own balance in my life um and I will say another very difficult thing is uh 
you will pro families will find you will be disappointed you will be let down by your own family you will be judged in ways that you never thought possible. Like, you know, I had a situation with our family where, um, because I was young, you know, you know, in my twenties, obviously my mom moved into a, a nursing home finally when I was oh, 25. And, uh, you know, so I was working full time, I was volunteering with the chapter, I was traveling. And, you know, some of my family are like, you know, you should go and see your mom more at the, at the home. And I'm like, well, I'm working. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm like, and some of them, you know, not to be mean, but we're retired. So I was like, well, why don't you guys go and see her more? Like, I was trying to get them to share the load with me and very few of them would actually go and visit her in the home, which was very upsetting to me. I started a family fund with the Huntington Society of Canada in my mom's name. Um, and I wanted our whole family to join. Well, this was while she was alive and I wanted them to join the monthly giving into her family fund. And out of our entire family, one of my cousins joined. Wow. And so, you know, you're going through this as a caregiver. You have disappointments on top of that with your own family. Because people don't react how you want. Not everybody's good with nursing homes, and, and which I really don't care. I'm not good with a nursing home, but you go, right? It's not about you, and you see a different side of people, and it is disappointing. And I, I think people need to be prepared for that. And they'll remember me when that happens. They'll be like, ah, Tara said this would happen. And and it's just finding what works for you, Um you know, I held on to the chapter. I got so involved. I'm sure many of you could tell you about it. Um, there, everybody kind of knows. Like I'm just like a bull in a china shop. But I'll like, you know, what can we do for media? What can we do for this? Let's push the envelope. Let's push harder. Let's ask for more money. Let's. Um, so that's I tried to take control with that. I ran a, our gala for years took over one of our biggest events, fundraisers at the time and pushed ahead with that and then had, you know, people join along that were passionate as well. Um, and those people that are really great volunteers are often the people in the most pain. And it's a way for them to contribute um, and raise money and awareness. So I did that. Um, I also found ways and I encourage people to do this, even when my mom was really sick in the end. I mean, she wasn't well enough to go on an airplane anymore. And I really, she wanted to go away. And I was like, God, I can't take her anywhere. Like, are you kidding? I mean, she was, she was being fed puree. She was choking. She was in a wheelchair, you know, like the whole thing. And I was like, where the hell could we take her? Like, what is she thinking? And then somebody said to me, well, take a nurse with you. And I think, you know, things like that, that was great advice for coping for me because it was really important for me to do things for her. Um, so what do we do? There was a nurse uh, at the fanning that said, I'll come with you wherever you want to take your mom. 
I will come with you. So just for a day. And so we took her to Bath. And, uh, you know, I, I talked about it at her funeral that it was you know, such a great memory. We went to the Bath Springs Hotel and we took pureed food and we snuck around in the back and I talked <laughs> to the chef and I said, whatever she orders, this is what you're going to give her. <laughs> like it's from the, <laughs> we brought it with us. And uh, he was like, okay. And the chef came out and she asked for steak. And next thing you know, yeah, this puree comes out and, and I'm, I'll never forget it. And she said, oh, it was the best steak I ever had. <laughs> so you have to find a way to, you know, keep doing things for them that they enjoy doing. It's modified. And if you need help, ask for help, right? Like I couldn't have taken her by myself that day. There's no way. I wanted to do something special um, for her. You know, and you can do it. You just have to just find a way. There's people that you can hire. There's LPNs. There's nurses. You know, who cares? What's a couple hundred bucks, right? Like to make a memory that's like, you know, going to last forever. So so that's what some of the coping strategies. And know you're going to be disappointed. And, you know, I I had a lot of uh, counseling. Like I... I paid a lot of money over the years to try and, you know, get good with what's happened here and to arrive to where I am now and, and not be bitter or sad, but, but know that it was a gift almost that because it, it changed who I am today. It made me a better person and, and uh, yeah, I've helped a lot of people and she helped me and yeah. So um, we'll talk about the Hunting Society Southern Alberta chapter now, if if you don't mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. Um, so yeah. do you do you know when it was founded? Uh, I would say it was well. The social worker started in ninety four, so I don't know if it was right around that time because I don't know exactly. Okay. No, it was probably before that. I don't know when it when it. Like on the books, I don't know when. When did you get involved with it? There was people running it before I got there. Fall of 1994. And there was people there, so. So did you get involved while you were doing your predictive testing or after you got the results for the predictive testing? I think a week after I got my results, I contacted the chapter and I went to my first meeting probably November of 94 right after my results wow um, yeah. as May is uh, Huntington's Awareness Month uh, mm-hmm. what does the Huntington Society and particularly the Southern Alberta chapter do to help families during uh, this month but not just this month but every month right how does how does the Huntington Society of Canada Southern Alberta chapter help families Families who are going through this experience that you've went through, but in their own unique way. Well, first and foremost, um, if we didn't have the society, which is completely funded by our chapters, um, you know, at this point, no, no government funding, we we would be a completely different community. Without them, they are our lifeline. Um, having our social workers across the country, I mean, I've spoken a lot today about 
you know, the predictive testing and, you know, the transition when you're transitioning somebody out of home. I mean, my mom was almost burning her house down. A lot of them are smokers, you know, talking, they're pulling their license, like that whole, it's like raising a child, but going backwards. It's like reversing time, right? So every one of those milestones, you need support and we have that. And I'm so, so grateful that the society... Um, over the decades was founded, as we know, by uh, Ralph and Ariel Walker. And what we have built, I mean, we're small but mighty, you know, with just over $4 million annual budget. Um, the services that we provide to all of our families and to be a national charity, like I've worked with other charities now um, that are not at a national level, like we don't uh, really probably understand the extent of how important that is to try and get, you know, an equal or as as a distribution of support you know it's not a feast or famine like calgary has everything edmonton edmonton has nothing like we try and share those services across the country for all of our families that's a very unique model um you know that's why we're also part of health partners um which for any of our families that are um part of the government you know when they run the united way campaigns and they have health partners running in parallel uh, we can give to those give to that uh, with your monthly giving and your employers will match that so health partners selected huntington's because we are a national charity so that makes us uh, not very many have that that's a great thing. We also have done research across the country. We've, you know, the board looks at every year how much money we have, and it's a very close split. It tips a little bit some years more than others when we have great re research to fund. Uh, we've got a lot of great research in the pipeline right now, as we know. So we have amazing uh, scientists on it. There's been breakthroughs in terms of, you know, reversing it in the mice model and finding linkages to other disease. We've been saying for 20 years that Huntington's is going to be the domino that will help cure or treat other diseases. Like it's so interlinked with Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's. We're so commingled, right? And because of us being a pure disease, meaning if you have the marker, you're going to get it. So the beauty, if there is one, uh, you know, I'm trying to silver lining here, is with our disease, we've attracted great science to it, scientists, because they inject this into a mouse model. They have it, right? There, it's... The mouse has it. It's not like some genes you may you may carry it. It may come forward. It may not. We're not like that. We're a pure disease. You have the gene. You will get it eventually. And so from a science point of view, that's a very good thing. And uh, we've attracted scientists that we never would have gotten to that. If you look at the publications, you know, from back in the 70s compared to now, how many hits were on Huntington's, it's exponential. And HSC, Huntington Society of Canada, in collaboration with uh, Huntington's in America, as well as CHDI, if anyone's not familiar with CHDI out of the States, 
who gives incredible funding every year to us. All of these partnerships, many years ago, we we had a conference that I attended. This was probably 10 years ago, at least that, maybe longer. And we had a speaker come from cancer. And he said on the podium, the way that CHDI out of the States has helped uh, collaborate with Huntington Society Canada, he said, I have never seen anything like this in cancer wow. in terms of collaboration of sharing of info because we're chdi stands for cure huntington's disease immediately i don't know what amount they were giving i think it was like at 1.90 million dollars a year some crazy number like that every year for research just for huntington's but the key was they had to share the results. That was the kicker. And that collaboration, we're, we're at the forefront of how we do things because they just want to find a cure. So we've got great minds, great support. Um, we've got great chapters that they raise, I think it's 50, 60, 70% of our annual monies coming in is from our chapters. We're very passionate people overall resilient we're fighters we're warriors um we stick together and we do go through as we know ebb and flows depending on where we are in our journey but um it's a true strong community and honestly the foundation of it all is is hsc and we wouldn't be able to do what we do every day especially those caregivers day in and day out with the support from our our society there, there's just no way so I, I asked the million dollar question now could we do more though well <laughs> we can always do more um, we need to continue the people that can to talk about Huntington's to raise awareness um, to you know I always talk about this with our chapter two let's piggyback on anything we can you know we I love partnerships. I love collaboration. A lot of these other diseases, Parkinson's, ALS, you know, these smaller, smaller um, neuro diseases. I think there should be more synergies together at, on the caregiver side, especially in the research side as well, because we're we're tackling similar problems. We're caring for people that have similar issues. Um, they're all heartbreaking. Um, and I think, you know, our government needs to to be a part of that. And because the longer we can keep our families at home and out of institutions, out of facilities, um, the better everybody is, right? Um, but we need support to do that. And it takes a lot of money. Uh, home care is great, but I think there needs to be... Um, incentives i mean look at what they've come up with with covid i mean there's there's a lot of money to be had um but the longer we can keep keep people where they need to be and keep them as safe as possible um the better off we'll be as a community um the big one of the big things that i hear uh not like just in general is it's not going to affect my family like you said because uh X, Y, and Z. I don't have the markers. No one in my family has ever had the markers. So why should I care? 
Why should I help mm-hmm. the Huntington Society? Why should I help cancer? So on and so forth. So to yeah. the to the people out there who are listening, who are thinking, mm-hmm. okay, great that uh, you have a society, you, you have funding, but why should I care? Why should I help? What would you say to those people? Well, <clears throat> if you look at uh, health partners, for example, there's 16 national charities in health partners. Statistically, 87% of Canadians will be affected by one of those diseases in their lifetime. That's a very, very high number. Um, So I know we're a small disease, but where I think it has a touch point where it, you know, can touch a lot of people is... Like I said, we are going to be the domino in the research arena. And we are so um, instrumental in that because we are that pure disease. You know, some of those other diseases, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. We know our marker. We found that in 93. We have made great strides at that. If they can unlock what they're doing with Huntington's, it will help these other diseases in the similar families and who knows how far that reaches right so I and you know the reality is is if you want healthy people in your community you've got to put funds into that like you know we always say that like don't judge other people you're not walking in their shoes you have no idea from a caregiver point of view you know there's young people in our chapter, for instance, that are carrying the weight of the world with their families. They've got one or two, several people are sick in their family, different generations, they all need different things, and they're holding down a job. You know, this disease, what makes it challenging for us is our families, most of them, do not speak about it because there's genetic discrimination. They may not be tested. So you never know um, how far your reach is, right? Everybody's dealing with their own thing, but we are kind of, we're not the cancer of the world. We can't go and everybody knows somebody with cancer, but for us, there's a stigma. It's not necessarily safe to be talking about this disease. So, you know, I just, and the reality is this, this is my, I think anyone who is healthy has an obligation to do more for the community, give back. And it's not always about money, right? If if you know that somebody's struggling with a situation at home and they're a caregiver, just do something to lighten their load. It's not all money, right? Like it's just having that empathy. And I think people are getting that, unfortunately, with this recent COVID. Like we are all one. We are all in this together. And, you know, if, if you go to work and your co-workers down and you don't know what's going on. Like there's a lot of families that will not speak about it at work um, because they they're on a benefit plan and they may, they maybe haven't been tested and they can't talk about it. Well, I can talk about it and I'm telling you, all of you that are listening, be mindful when you go to work, be mindful when you're with your friends and you see someone or you know someone that's caring for somebody, you might not know what's wrong with them, but we can always do a little bit more. And it's not all about money. Just be there to support each other because, 
you don't always know what people are going through. Um, in conclusion, to, to wrap this up, uh, mm-hmm. Tara, um, looking back on that predictive test that you went through, uh, seeing your mother go through Huntington's, mm-hmm. what is the one takeaway that you've learned about this disease and how you've been able to cope with uh, living with the knowledge that you have that while your mother was diagnosed with it, you haven't. What, what's the one takeaway from this, your whole life so far in regards to Huntington's? We, we've talked about how the society is a uh, family. We've talked about how there's resources out there for everyone. But what's the one takeaway that you take away from it all? Life is precious. And I've, I'm so blessed even though we've went through the most painful tragedy of my life, watching somebody deteriorate right before your eyes, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of beauty and strength. And I have, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, had the, the opportunity and the gift of, um, you know, basically reuniting with my mom and her leaving this world, she passed at 47. Um, she waited for me to come back. I was away on holidays. And um, we were able to come back and basically find each other again. And I think um, both have respect for each other because before Huntington's, you know, for various reasons, we didn't have that, but the gift to get to know each other in a different way, to be there for each other in a different way. Um, she was grateful that I could come and see her. I mean, we had her, t- she had a couple temper tantrums and such, but um, it really reunited us. And I am, it is, oh, like the aside from my son, it is the biggest gift of my life. So, but very painful to, to watch and endure. Um, and all the people that are out there caregiving and watching this with their family members live with no regret. Do things, even though they're hard, I'm telling you, I always say this, I say this all the time to um, anyone who asks me about my mom or how it went or whatever. I just say, you know, if you want to do something for them, make it happen. Don't make excuses. Live with if you are going to, I always say, ask yourself, are you going to regret it if you don't do this? If the answer is yes, if she dies tomorrow or he dies tomorrow, you're going to regret it. If you say yes, then you better find a way to make it happen live with no regret. I have no regrets with my mom. I did what I could. I supported her. I tried to take care of myself because if you burn out, you know, you have to get some boundaries to to care for yourself so that you can be there. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. We all know that. Um, getting that respite when you need it, taking a break, taking a holiday. You know, I my mom didn't want me going away. She didn't like it when I'd leave for a week at a time. Um, but, you know, I did it because I needed to recharge. 
So you just do what you need to do to be okay with it because, the, you know, we know they're going to leave eventually. We know it's not going to be happy, but you need to, to have a, a light heart about it. Like, are you going to be okay with it? If you have regrets, you can never undo that. You Time is what you have now and you need to seize that and do what you need to do to be okay with it when they're gone because you'll never get this time back again. So that is probably the most important thing I've learned. Do you instill that upon your son? Oh, yeah, I do. He's he's uh, he's come to some Huntington's events already and giving back. And I say to him, if you have it to give, we give back. We help other people. You need to be. And it's like, I mean, it's not disease related, right? Like he sees that we need to instill that in our kids. And uh, a lot of people are just, you know, I don't want to not a lot. I shouldn't say a lot, but, you know, some people are just lazy and they're selfish and it's me, me, me. And it shouldn't be like that. You know, like there's a lot of people that are dealing with a lot of things and it's our responsibility. If you can give more, you you should, whether it's time or empathy or whatever that is. No, understandable. Um, Tara, I, I, I do appreciate uh, you being open, upfront, honest, um, I I I I never knew your mother, but I can imagine that she's looking down on you right now and very happy with how you've uh, taken a cause and ran with it and made sure that people know about this disease. So I want to thank you very much for that. I want to thank you for for doing these broadcasts, these podcasts to raise awareness it's um so important to all of us families and not not everybody can have a voice so we appreciate you giving us the medium to do that and spread the word and and take the time because a lot don't and i really on behalf of our chapter and the society as a whole we are so grateful for you appreciate all the the light you're shining on this for us well if, if it's one little way that i can help out then let's do it right so thank you again um uh, again you have opened my eyes to a, this this whole week that i've been sitting down with uh guests uh i i my eyes are now open and <laughs> if there's any other way that i can give back you dang well better believe that i'll be there helping out in one way or, or another well, I'll be holding you to it. Don't worry. <laughs> awesome. Thanks very much, Tara. Okay. Thanks so much. Stay well. And once again, I want to thank our guests for coming in, sitting down and telling their story. If you want to learn more about Huntington's disease, please visit HuntingtonSociety.ca. While there, please feel free to reach out to your local chapter, get involved. But if you can, please donate. Your donation can help families across Canada. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. And once again, I'm your host, Christopher Brown. We will be back tomorrow with another great episode of the Cross Border Interviews Huntington Awareness Week. <laughs>